A brand new sound for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing the Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now on 77 WABC. The Rev and the Rabbi. Where faith matters. Good morning. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. So, Reverend, a number of things obviously are happening that need to be addressed. This, the anti-Asian prejudice, the attacks, um, it's just it's unacceptable. And whether we're Asian or not, it doesn't matter because we need to be there for one another. We who have been victims uh, of prejudice over the years, we know what it is to feel isolated, to feel abandoned. Uh, we're not going to do that with our Asian brothers and sisters. So I, I'm, I, I know we, uh, we're doing a number of programs, you and I, uh, to reassure the Asian community that you don't stand alone. Uh, yeah, you know, we had Congresswoman Meng on, and this past week we did an anti-Asian uh, prejudice uh, uh, panel discussion with the Cardinal. And we're doing everything we can to have the conversation and to make it clear that this is unacceptable, especially in this day and time. And it's not the first encounter in American history that the Asian community has has been targeted, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the, the numbers are, are going up. I, I had a uh, uh, a meeting with um, mayoral candidate Andrew Yang, and he was just talking about the rise in uh, assault against Asians uh, across the country. We're talking about 3,000 over the last uh, year uh, during COVID, and it continues to go up. So I think that, you know, the the, the whole atmosphere of xenophobia, fear of the other, Mm -hmm. to a point that you feel that you have to attack the other, the blaming of the Asian population for uh, COVID-19, you know, I, I, it's just the swirl of these conspiracy theories and, 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 and stories and ideas that that people react to and take as reality is problematic in our society. You know, one of the prayers we have uh, states, Lord, guard my tongue from guile and speaking evil. And each one of us has to look at what words we use because it contributes to an atmosphere where people are seen as threats and then pay the price uh, as victims. And I can tell you back, looking back at Jewish history, we were blamed for a host of things. Uh, and as a result, you know, we suffered many, many uh, physical attacks. Uh, African-Americans, you know, you know uh, better. Uh, look at look at the price you paid for being perceived as different than someone mm-hmm. else, or being perceived as responsible for some of the ills of society. So all of us uh, have to look within uh, so we don't see the continuation of this horrific prejudice. It's unacceptable. Here we are. You know, we have va- we have a vaccine now, uh, which you just took. Uh, I, I heard. Yeah, I got uh, the va- Johnson and Johnson yeah. vaccine this past uh, week. Well, now the stock will go up. And now said so that. far, yeah. so good. Of yeah. course, <laughs> <laughs> I had Moderna. So anyway, um, I, I can I, I can tell you that we we have a vaccine for COVID. We don't have that vaccine for prejudice, but there is a possible cure of all of us will work together and do what we can uh, to to remove it from our midst. There is a solution to the problem. 
And, you know, that's that's where our religious ethic comes into play, because we believe in the solidarity of the human family, that we're all connected in some way, and that what hurts one hurts all of us, essentially. Um, but I want to ask you, because, you know, I, you know, I, I think that uh, too often within communities, we, we talk about, we get the impression that we are safest amongst our own kind. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and when you grow up with that thinking, you actually develop a fear of the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, you know, I, I see that in the black community. I see that in the white community, the Jewish community. You know, I mean, uh, that's that's a very real influence that shapes the minds of children in their relationship with others, especially if they're in school and, you know, experiencing diversity. But when they come back to their neighborhood or especially in their home, they're reminded that they are of a particular kind. Um, speak yeah. to that, Robert. Well, we're comfortable with people who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us. Uh, mm-hmm. it, by the way, it goes into the political arena as well. Uh, we're, we're so divided. God forbid, you know, we're with someone who has a different point of view. God forbid we're with someone who in any way behaves differently than we do. Then we can't accept that. Um, you know, I look at the Passover experience where we talk about the four children sitting at the Seder, and they are different from one another, and they are encouraged to ask questions. As a matter of fact, I saw a great sermon title, which you can you can use. It says, are you on asking terms with your children? Do you uh-huh. have, right, do you have a home where kids can freely ask you questions, even if you don't have the answers, but they have to be able to ask. You know, a great compliment in Jewish tradition is to call someone a learned student. You don't know it all, but you're a student who seeks to know more. And I, I just think that, you know, we have to bring down those barriers that separate us from one another uh, because uh, we live in a, in a world that is diverse. And that is, you know, I, I see these young kids walking uh with, you know, holding on to the rope. Have you seen that? The very young children, they're, you know, preschool, and they're walking together and all holding on to the rope, and they're all different from one another, and I am convinced they don't see the difference. It's true. It, it, yeah, they don't. They're, there's an innocence, and in how many times we've seen a cartoon where one, one uh, uh, colored child and one white child, and, and little Johnny says, uh, hey, my friend Billy is different. And immediately the parents are alarmed in the cartoon. And he says, yeah, he's taller than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wish, we wish it were so with, you know, as when we're adults. How, how often do we judge people by their outer appearance and not bother to, to look within? Um, I, I see some changes, you know, in talking to my own son. Um, he... You know, he doesn't see the difference that I grew up seeing. Uh, you know, he'll play ball with kids. He doesn't care what's the background of the kid playing ball with me. Uh, we're playing together on a team. And I'm hopeful that the next generation um, is going to behave differently. But this anti-Asian prejudice, now you see the shooting in Atlanta. Now, you know, they're discussing, was it a hate crime? Well, he hated women. You know, that that's a hate crime right there. And yeah, six yeah, six yeah. Asian women were killed, you know, yeah. and this climate, you know, more victims uh, in the Asian community. We can't accept that. That is just uh, it has to be something where we say to the Asian community, you're not different. You're like we are. And the person who, you know, obviously hates me today, hates you tomorrow. Uh, we have a real challenge here in bringing people together and saying to the hate mongers, 
you will not, you will not uh, get away with attacking them. You have to answer to us too. Right. And I think the Asian community will feel re- somewhat relieved. Yeah, I, I think when there is a, a consensus of outrage, it puts pressure on individuals who uh, even f- consider, you know, on the basis of some race or color or gender, uh, attacking someone, mm-hmm. let alone murdering someone. Yeah. You know, this is women uh, Women's Month uh, here in America that we're, we're, we're wrapping up. And on the cover of Time magazine, it talked uh, uh, about protecting women when the law won't protect them, and and that's because they've noticed that domestic violence mm-hmm. uh, towards women has skyrocketed. And we're going to talk about uh, abuse, not specifically to women, but to children yeah. uh, today on our program with our guests, correct? Yeah, we have a, a very important guest, Dr. Jennifer Wortham, who is the executive director of uh, the Initiative of Health, Religion, and Spirituality at Harvard University. So we look forward to that discussion. Stay tuned. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 W.A.B.C. Sinai Chapels provides compassionate care to New York's Jewish community. Conveniently located in Fresh Meadows, Queens, every funeral detail is handled by an attentive professional staff according to each family's personal and religious preferences. Sinai staff is at the chapel for you, 24 hours, 7 days a week. Sinai Chapels is committed to your health and safety and offers carefully planned and socially distanced services at their modern chapel or area cemeteries. Sinai has developed Zoom programs for live stream services, shiva, and consultation. Sinai Chapels offers pre-need plans to relieve families of making arrangements at a difficult time. Sinai's pre-need plans offer savings and are 100% government-backed. For more information, please call Sinai Chapels or visit jewishfunerals.com. That's jewishfunerals.com. Sinai Chapels in Fresh Meadows, Queens, providing compassionate care for four generations. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend Bernard, you know I'm from the great state of Massachusetts. And I didn't go to Harvard, uh, but I walked by many times, and that was my distinction. But we are privileged today to have someone who uh, is highly respected at Harvard, Dr. Jennifer Wortham, who's the executive director of the Initiative of Health, Religion, and Spirituality at that great institution. Dr. Gwertham, thank you so much for being on The Reverend Rabbi. Well, thank you for having me, gentlemen. I'm honored. Yes, welcome. So there is a major uh, program that you have inspired us to uh, support. It's the World Day for the Prevention and Healing from Child Sexual Abuse, April the 8th. And so many people around uh, the world uh, faith leaders and civic leaders and really people of renown uh, are supporting this effort. Talk about it for a moment. Yes, well, uh, April is Child um, Abuse Awareness Month in the United States, and it is also uh, Sexual Violence Awareness Month. 
And um, for, for many years, um, the United States has celebrated uh, this, this day in terms of prevention and healing for children and, and working with adults um, around the country to uh, form programs uh, to, to, to really prevent abuse. And um, I think the most important part of the day is that what we're taking is we're combining uh, the emphasis on, on children and prevention of abuse with the um, prevention of sexual violence. And there is not a day established for prevention of uh, sexual abuse for children. So uh, we really felt strongly that it was time. Um, we've seen so many um, stories of child abuse the last um, three or four years national headlines um, around the Boy Scouts and uh, the, the gymnasts and uh, many um, uh, issues with different faith organizations. And we really felt it was time, um, that the time had come, that we needed to um, have a day dedicated to uh, pre- preventing this abuse of, of children and, um, and helping survivors to heal. Can you define for us, when you talk about sexual abuse, child abuse, can you Give us a, uh, uh, you know, a, a definite explanation there. Yes. So child sexual abuse, which is also referred to as child molestation, is a form of child abuse in which an adult or an older adolescent uses a child for some type of sexual stimulation. Um, there are many forms of child sexual abuse. It includes asking or pressuring um, a, a child to um, to do an act that they're you know is inappropriate. Um, indecent exposure. Um, it, it could be um, uh, what we call child grooming uh, and exploitation, um, and child pornography. And so um, we also are considering uh, trafficking uh, of children. Um, that are trafficked for um, uh, sexual exploitation. And female, uh, or actually all child genital mutilation is part of sexual abuse. You know, you know doctor, uh, this is Reverend Bernard. Uh, you know, I, I know some of the statistics I hear of close to 700,000 children that are abused in the United States each year. And that's mm-hmm. staggering uh, to, to hear those numbers. What's, what's the age breakdown? Are the youngest children the most vulnerable, uh, older children? Who are the most vulnerable here? Well, I, you know, unfortunately, and I'm going to say, I'm not going to start off with age. I'm going to start off with, um, uh, unfortunately this impacts, um, children of color, the greatest. And so, mm. um, we, we have a significant problems with, um, minority populations and, and children who are vulnerable, children who come from, um, uh, you know, poverty and, and or um, where they have, uh, you know, single parent households um, are, are really the most vulnerable and, and, and have the greatest risk of child uh, sexual abuse. But that is not to say that um, it doesn't happen at, at all levels of society. And so, um, uh, you know, we unfortunately um, you know, see it, it, it um, you know, there's very, very young children. Um, it, it, it can happen to infants, um, which is more rare, but it can happen to infants. Um, and, it, and it really occurs up until, you know, about the age of um, 16 or 17, although the official definition is any, any, anyone under 18 years of age that is um, abused or um, encounters a sexual experience with someone that's greater than three years older than them. Um, would be considered uh, child sexual abuse. number of young people now, because of COVID, uh, are doing virtual learning, which means they're on the computer a lot of hours. 
And I'm just wondering, that must contribute to the problem also because some of the potential predators, they know kids are on the computer. Exactly. And that is one of the reasons why this year especially is an important year to be launching this um, this World Day. There has been a significant increase in um, digital exploitation of children. Um, and uh, the, the CDC, the World Health Organization, um, all of the major um, child welfare and advocacy organizations are deeply concerned um, uh, about the uh, exponential increase in, in, in abuse of children online. Um, the, the abuse goes every, uh, and covers everything from, you know, sexual bullying um, to um, uh, getting children to do things on the computer that they may not otherwise do. So they, they may be co- coerced into um, taking a picture or sending pictures of themselves um, in various uh, compromising situations. Um, once the predator has access to, you know, some information that the child might have revealed that, that the child would not want their parents or others to know, then they use that um, to against the child to, to leverage them into doing even um, uh, other acts and putting the child at greater risk. So it's very, very important for parents to be very vigilant um, around what their children are doing online. Um, and, and I will say that predators are um, very clever and, um, and how, how they're getting to children um, and, um, and, and all the different um, ways they can get to children. Um, and, and I think it's, um, it, you know, it's something we really need to pay attention to. Uh, doctor, can you speak to the connection between uh, a child uh, abused and when they grow up? What's the connection between childhood abuse and adult mental health challenges or problems? Well, I think, unfortunately, um, so many people in society who experience child sexual abuse do not disclose their abuse. Um, the, the statistics that um, that we see are around 60% um, of people do, do not ever tell anyone that they've been abused. Um, and what that does is it creates for them a lot of internal conflict and anxiety, um, mm. and, and which leads to greater stress. Um, and we see much higher rates of um, substance abuse, alcoholism, and even suicide among, um, among uh, individuals who experience child sexual abuse. We call this an adverse childhood experience. Um, one of the things we're now seeing, um, which is also um, fairly concerning, is an, an increase in um, exposure to potentially you know, physical harm of the child um, long term from the stress um, associated with their early childhood experiences. Um, many of these uh, people experience post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome as well. Um, and so we, there's actually now evidence that um, children who have adverse childhood experiences, including child sexual abuse, um, encounter what we call a shorter telomere length. And mm-hmm. the telomere um, length is, um, is indicative of, is that we consider that a biomarker, um, at which um, uh, really means that we see greater incidences of um, everything from cancer to diabetes to uh, cardiovascular disease. So it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is something that we really need to look at from a societal perspective because the, the, the rates of mental health problems um, for people that encounter this, that especially if they go untreated, um, you know, is, are very high. Um, uh, other challenges that we see are that you know, people are not able to really uh, fully, um, you know, live, live full lives. They, they, they um, because this happens when they're, you know, children or teenagers, um, they end up having a lot of um, conflicting, you know, emotions. Some of them have issues with anger, 
um, and, and getting in trouble in school. And it really sets their life course off in a direction that um, just continues to, uh, to tumble. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and so, you know, we, we really need, as a society, we really need to start um, focusing on this a bit more and, and making sure that um, we're more aware. And that's a big reason why we're doing the, the World Day, is, is we really want people um, to be more vigilant and aware of, of what's going on. Can we go back to the Internet again? I remember attending a conference in Rome uh, about digital uh, child safety. And we had, mm-hmm. you know, many of the uh, representatives from different technology firms, some of the major ones. And the question was, are you doing everything possible to protect these kids online? And I can say to you, and you know even better, uh, we didn't walk away with a satisfactory answer. Could you address that? You know, it's very interesting. I, um, you know, I want to say that that um, that the internet is, is, a, is, a, is a whole new world that we're all learning how to navigate. And um, and, I, and just yesterday, I, I was listening to a news report on the BBC about um, about the freedom of 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 people's expression on, on the social media. And, and, um, you know, if, if, if there were, um, if there's more censorship, what would that entail, um, in terms of freedom of expression? And, um, and there was, it was quite an interesting debate. They had a number of expert speakers from around the world that were talking about it. And I, I, I really tuned in to listen because, um, you know, that the, the, the importance of censoring, um, what's going on in, in, in these social media platforms and on the internet, I think it's just really important to protect our children um, because there's just so many ways that um, the internet can be used. Um, and it, it, the, the challenge as a, as a, as a medium is, is that it's, you know, it's like, it's like the telephone, you know, we, we, it's a communications device and the predators, as soon as you, as soon as you find you know, you find them or you find one way that they're getting in um, the, the, the communications door, then they find other ways to, to break through the barriers. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to um, I'm not going to say that it's any any Internet company's fault, you know, that, that there's there's um, things that are evolving so rapidly in the technology world. Um, but I will say that um, I, I feel like they really do need to focus um, a great deal of time and energy and resources, especially uh, as we're seeing the, the exponential increase during during this unprecedented pandemic. Um, so, you know, we really need to rally together. Yeah, I, I, you know, I heard one psychologist say, I mean, regulation is is very important and mm-hmm. that's still cyberspace is still an unregulated, uh, you know, uh, platform, but some psychologists say that if you take away the phone from the child, that has emotional and psychological problems because the phone tends to be their main medium of connection, whether it's to their friends, to uh, access information to school, or whatever. Do you find that challenging? You know, I so that is very that's very important observation. So if if you think about the phone or the internet as an escape for the child or even as a, a mechanism to reach out for help as well. Um, so, you know, not all child sexual abuse happens online. There's a percentage that does, but what we find statistically is, you know, about a third of the child sexual abuse happens in, in, in the child's home. 
um, a, a majority of cases is somebody that the child knows. Um, and and so the Internet and, and, and being able to have children connect with their friends and ultimately maybe there's a disclosure that, that to somebody that they trust that they can get help. Um, especially if the if the situation is happening at home, so you know it is it's a very complex issue, and I think um, we 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 do need to come together, um, you know, with with technology firms, and there is some there is a lot of um, great work that's being done. Um, we within our our conference that's coming up, we have um, a whole segment focusing on. Uh, you know, what's the state? What is the state of social media and the Internet in terms of the efforts that are that are going on? Um, so we're looking forward to um, hearing those presentations and, and then having some um, some good discourse about that. We're going to take a break right now. It's important discussion. We'll be back with Dr. Jennifer Wortham on the Rev and the Rabbi. Sinai Chapels provides compassionate care to New York's Jewish community. Conveniently located in Fresh Meadows, Queens, every funeral detail is handled by an attentive professional staff according to each family's personal and religious preferences. Sinai staff is at the chapel for you, 24 hours, 7 days a week. Sinai Chapels is committed to your health and safety and offers carefully planned and socially distanced services at their modern chapel or area cemeteries. Sinai has developed Zoom programs for live stream services, Shiva, and consultation. Sinai Chapels offers pre-need plans to relieve families of making arrangements at a difficult time. Sinai's pre-need plans offer savings and are 100% government-backed. For more information, please call Sinai Chapels or visit jewishfunerals.com. That's jewishfunerals.com. Sinai Chapels in Fresh Meadows, Queens, providing compassionate care for four generations. Renee Aubenard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, The Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. 77 WABC and WABCRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard, and you're listening to The Rev and the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. So, we are guests, uh, Dr. Jennifer Wortham, uh, brilliantly responding to these questions that Rabbi is grilling you with, uh, (laughs) Doctor. Uh, But uh, let's let's talk about the the trafficking issue. is it is it domestic or is it international coming into the United States? Where's the problem most? This is also a very tragic issue, and and you know every day when we're working in this space, we learn we learn things that are just you know um, really deeply disturbing and challenging. So I think trafficking has been seen for a long time as more of an, a problem of you know kind of an international trafficking where. Um, you know, it's happening to in countries where there's very, very marginalized um, uh, societies um, and, and children are at great risk. Um, and you, you, you see a lot of stories about, um, you know, people traveling overseas to, to access children um, in, in countries where they feel safe um, from the authorities. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing more reports where there where our children are actually being trafficked in the United States, even, you know, and into um other, you know, major industrialized countries. Um, so it, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very comprehensive problem. Um, and one of the things that I've been really, it was very sad for me to, to, to learn is that um, we're seeing an increase in the rates of 
uh, uh, parents trafficking their children. Mm. And again, this is an economic issue. Um, and so, um, and when we say you know trafficking, and that's happening, it, it's happening here in the United States. It's happening, of course, in you know many other countries in the world, in India and in China, um, where. Um, parents are, you know, they they're unable to provide for their families, and so they get approached by by someone um, uh, with an opportunity to, you know, take pictures of their children and send send those pictures off, um, and and or um, children are are sold, yeah. and um, and and that's I think uh, for me been been one of the most deeply um, troubling things that I that I've learned in the in the past um, several months and we also see um, an increase in trafficking um, when there is drug abuse involved so if you have um, a parent or parents that are um, addicted especially um, we're seeing an increase in um, children that are trafficked by parents that are addicted to meth as amphetamines um, wow. uh, they you know they run out of money, they need to get their fix and wow. Um, wow. and they're they're put at risk. So, wow. you know, so many complex issues. So, Dr. Wortham, um, one of the things that obviously uh, is true is that, you know, we, we look at numbers and one in four, I see with girls, one in 13 boys, but the numbers, in a way, they, they don't help us because, uh, as you said to us uh, before we took the break, we believe in zero. We don't want to see anybody right. uh, who is victimized. Anyway, so, um, you know, it's good that we see the numbers going down, but that's not the goal. The goal is to eradicate the the problem uh, in our lifetime. Uh, Right. Reverend Bernard and I, we're faith leaders, and we talk about sacred space. The word sacred is, you know, common to our vocabulary. People coming into a house of worship expect the sacred space to be safe space. And I would add, you can't have sacredness without safety. Talk about what is our responsibility? What are some of the things we need to provide uh, so that indeed it is as safe as possible, making it sacred as possible? Well, I think first and foremost, um, we need to make sure that everybody is working in the faith community is um, is trained um, on how to protect children in their own faith community. Um, and we need to have safeguarding programs um, in the faith communities that uh, focus on prevention so that that all the members of the faith community um, can provide as safe an, an environment as possible. And uh, so that's the first and foremost, that's first and foremost. Then as faith leaders, um, faith leaders have a responsibility to make sure that um, that they're addressing the issue of sexuality and um, and appropriate behaviors um, in, in their ministry work. And then another responsibility of the faith leader and the entire faith community is to really rally behind their children. And um, it's the responsibility of every adult to help protect children. So if somebody in the faith community is struggling, if there's a known issue with addiction or alcoholism or a family that's um, falling on very difficult times, um, the, the faith community really needs to be there to be that emotional support. And I think that that the faith leaders can reinforce that, that it is everybody's responsibility to take care of the children in their church, in their community, and the broader community. Um, and, and then something that's deeply important to me, because the, the, the reason that, um, that I founded the World Day 
and um, and really am doing as much work on this as I can, is that both of my brothers were um, were abuse survivors. They were abused by our our parish priest, and um, and it's been a it's been a real struggle for my family uh, for many years to, to have encountered that, and so. Um, I, I, I came back, I left the church, but I came back to the church a few years ago, um, when Pope Francis was made Pope and, um, and it was for me a very pivotal moment because he took responsibility and, and, and said that he was going to make some changes in the church and, and that really resonated and, and it really moved me pretty deeply. And, um, I really feel that, um, the, the, the healing of, of victims of child abuse, no matter where it happens, um, the faith leaders can play a very important role in, in that process. And um, oftentimes, um, somebody who's been abused, they just need someone to talk to. Um, they need somebody to um, work with them and um, and let them know that they're loved by God and that um, that they understand it's difficult, but um, that, that you're there to walk with them through their healing journey. Um, so many victims that that have, you know, so many children when they've experienced this abuse, um, end up having challenges with with God. They question, why did God let this happen? Um, right. Am I a bad person? And so the 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 spiritual leader is is really has can have a significant impact on on how that individual um, perceives their relationship with God. And so. It's so important, and and we want faith leaders to reach out and and be there for people who've experienced child sexual abuse. And, and Reverend, I know in your church, I think the numbers I see, you know, you have a huge following. Um, what is it, forty thousand members? I saw online, yes. or is there more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. if you think about it, if if it's one in ten children. Um, in the United States have been abused at any given time, you could have 4,000 to, you know, double that amount of people in your, um, in your congregation that have experienced child sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and their families are impacted. Um, Their relationships, you know, all their interpersonal relationships, it even impacts their children. And so, you know, reaching out and, and being there for them is, is really important. Yeah, I, I, and you know, we've had to build into our structure and, and, and systems mm-hmm. uh, protections because mm-hmm. sometimes uh, it becomes apparent because, you know, we have that child for a Sunday, an hour and 15 minutes in a Sunday school setting, and yet some of the Sunday school teachers are picking up right away that there's a problem at home. Some of the children's parents don't come, but they come. Uh, you know, we, we, we actually implement um, background checks on anyone that's going to be working with children. So we try to put in as, as many safeguards as possible because, you know, uh, young people especially experience a relationship with a minister or a priest or imam. Uh, actually experiencing a vicarious relationship with God through mm-hmm. that minister, mm-hmm. that priest, or, or that imam. Right. So it it, 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 it it hurts their faith. You know, it hurts their it their experience. Um, so we have to be built yeah. into it, especially as large as our congregation yeah. is. Yeah. I think that the broader question is that any child who's experienced sexual abuse that comes from a faith community, whether it happened by a teacher or a priest or their coach, 
um, they are experiencing a spiritual crisis because they are perceiving that either God abandoned them or that they did something wrong. Um, and so it's it's not only if they're abused in in a faith setting or by a faith leader, but because by na- the very nature that they are a a person of faith, um, they are going to struggle because of this this violation of their dignity. And so it's important for faith leaders to to recognize um, that this right. issue, you know, is so broad. You know, so. Jennifer, when uh, Dr. Bernard and I were discussing April the 8th, this important day uh, for prevention and healing from child sexual abuse, uh, we immediately said, how can we how can we not support this and how can we inspire others to support? It? And I have to say, uh, it was not challenging to get other people to come forward and say, I want to be part of April the 8th. I want to be part of this cause uh, because if we really are people of Belief, you measure belief by behavior, uh, and therefore we have to do everything we can uh, to protect our kids. You know, there's a sign I've seen, and Reverend Brown, you've probably seen it. It's near a cemetery of all places. It says, you never stand so tall as when you stoop to help a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the juxtaposition with the cemetery maybe is a is a lesson that if we don't protect our kids, we're looking at some very dire circumstances. So, Jennifer, right. we're, we're going to stand tall with you. Uh, and look forward to participating. Now, now, now Rabbi, I'm going to squeeze something in. Uh, you're listening to the Reverend <laughs> Rabbi here on 77 <laughs> WABC. Uh, but before we go, I, I, you, Rabbi, you brought this up in the beginning because Jennifer is the executive director uh, for the Initiative on Health, Religion, and Spirituality. Um, there's a lot of talk about the difference, the distinction between the two. What's your distinction between religion and spirituality? I'm going to take the easy way out and say every person defines their spirituality for themselves. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, That's a great way to conclude. <laughs> All right. Dr. Jennifer Wortham, Executive Director, Initiative Health, Thank Religion you. and Spirituality, and Reverend Bernard, as we say, at Harvard. All right. The great uh, yeah, did, we give, uh, support, did, did we give her an opportunity, Rabbi, to give a website or, or, yeah. or some yeah, Jennifer, where please. people can get information? Yeah. Yes. So um, if you want more information, you can visit the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard uh, University. So um, and and we can post I don't know how you guys can post. It's a very long URL, but it's the Human Flourishing uh, Project. And it's the symposium on child sexual abuse, which is coming up. And there's more information there. And then also the April 8th World Day um, dot org. That's Uh, the um, World Day. And thank um, you. I'm also proud of Rabbi Diana Gerson, who got very involved and introduced us. So thank you for all you're doing. And let's look forward uh, to doing everything we can uh, so that we don't have to talk about this problem in years to come. This is our responsibility. And you are. You guys have been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Take care. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. God bless. We'll be back with more. With more. Of the Rev. Come on, say it, Rabbi. And the Rabbi. Yeah. Thank there you. you. Go. I've been practicing. Sinai Chapels provides compassionate care to New York's Jewish community. Conveniently located in Fresh Meadows, Queens, every funeral detail is handled by an attentive professional staff according to each family's personal and religious preferences. Sinai staff is at the chapel for you, 24 hours, 7 days a week. Sinai Chapels is committed to your health and safety and offers carefully planned and socially distanced services at their modern chapel or area cemeteries. 
Sinai has developed Zoom programs for live stream services, Shiva, and consultation. Sinai Chapels offers pre-need plans to relieve families of making arrangements at a difficult time. Sinai's pre-need plans offer savings and are 100% government-backed. For more information, please call Sinai Chapels or visit jewishfunerals.com. That's jewishfunerals.com. Sinai Chapels in Fresh Meadows, Queens, providing compassionate care for four generations. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. You know, Rev, I was uh, listening to Jennifer uh, closely, and I, I thought to myself, we do a lot of preaching. And I recall years ago talking about the homeless, and a young kid came over to me, I about 11, 12 years old. He said, Rabbi, I heard the sermon. Very good. What are you doing about the homeless besides talking about it? And I have to say, that was a, a, a moment of awakening for me. Uh, to, to realize that if we're going to have an impact on the lives of people, we have to involve ourselves in dealing, uh, you know, in a way that, 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 that is impactful, not just, not just being on a, on a pulpit and talking about it. And I, and I think Jennifer, you know, she reminded us of our responsibility. You know, I, I think it's important that we understand that the cycle of life is for us to learn, to grow, but then to contribute, to give back in some way. And unless you're doing that, I love the statement that our value as human being does not come from what we consume. It comes from what we contribute. Mm -hmm. And we have a responsibility to give back, you know, to take up uh, a concern for the society in which we, we, we live, our, our, our brother's keeper. That's that's who we are. Loving our neighbor yeah. is being concerned about the quality of life for, for everyone. Uh, so I think it's especially with children, because they're, they're among the most vulnerable in society. You know, I, it, I, I, I cringe. I can't watch a movie where there's child abuse. Mm -hmm. It just, it, it, it does something to me, you know what I mean? And I just rather not yeah. be entertained by it, you know, uh, and move on to something else. And, you know, these kids on the Internet at home with parents who certainly in many cases are not as proficient uh, in the use of the Internet as their kids are. So, right. you know, monitoring becomes even more difficult. Um, but there's, we have to find a way uh, to limit this as much as possible um, you know, it can't be this open highway without restrictions. And, and I hope that we, you know, we hold uh, the platform firms uh, really accountable for their behavior. What are you doing? Uh, and that's something we have to constantly uh, confront. What are we all doing? But they have a special responsibility, too. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was looking at some of the statistics in preparation for today's broadcast. And, you know, the majority of of uh, abuse and violence against children comes from parents. So there's something wrong, yeah. you know, in, in, in the minds of the parents with regard to their children. And, and we don't know, you know, this can be passed on. Well, we do know that some things are passed on generationally. And usually parents that have been abused tend to abuse their, their children. Yeah. And, and it, it just falls into a cycle. Well, I was reading about also, uh, if you look, see a kid who's very quiet and seems troubled or lonely, passive, 
you know, there are external signs uh, that may uh, awaken you uh, to the problem. Uh, just, you know, don't look the other way. And obviously you see any marks on a person. And then that carries over to, you know, all kinds of family violence. Uh, we see people who, you know, adults who are abused. So we always have to be vigilant uh, in making sure that uh, we we watch carefully. Uh, how, how does your faith tradition uh, speak to what we would call generational sins, something that's passed on from generation to generation? Well, you know, if, if, if yeah. you don't make a decision about it, you know, you know, it's we do say that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the, you know, the shortcomings of the parents become the deficiencies of the children. But we also say that given the free will that you have, given the human mind and soul, you can, you know, it it can stop. Uh, you you can uh, confront it in a meaningful way and bring it to an end. You're not this passive victim who says, "Well, because my folks did it, I have to do it." Um, mm. You know, uh, we we are powerful enough, uh, and we certainly can seek all kinds of remedial help to see to it that that generation was the last generation to contribute to the problem. So we're not just you know these receptacles. Uh, we are human beings. So our fate is not sealed just because exactly. our parents had a challenge. I think, you know, I, in, in our, our, our uh, Bible, it's, it, there's a proverb in the prophet uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. And it says that you'll no longer say to me, um, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, right. therefore the children's teeth are on right. edge. I'm sure you're familiar with sure, it. Sure, sure. But each generation can make a decision not to walk uh, in the same ways um, that and make the same choices that the fathers had. You know, I think about alcoholism that's that leads to abuse. I think about all of these things. And I think it's so important that people understand that you can make a quality decision to end that chain of events that tends to take yeah. place from generation to generation. And and we have to be instruments uh, in seeing to it that they have the support they need. All right, this yeah. has been a very, very important discussion today, and uh, I, I'm so glad that uh, we were able to not only sign on to April 8th Day, but to get other people to start examining, you know, what are their respective policies uh, in their institutions, uh, in all the places uh, that they frequent, what are they doing about it? So right, right. we got more to do, but uh, I think today was a was a good beginning for us. Thank you so Excellent much. Excellent job, oh, Rabbi. Until next time with um, the Rev and the Rabbi. I agree. Stay safe. God bless you too. <laughs>